0: Daniel chapter 9, and we're going to be starting in verse 20 today, picking up where we left off last week. Now, I assume you all know the phrase, God works in mysterious ways. You don't know that one? I remember hearing it for the first time as a kid, my granny saying it, God works in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. And uh, you know, I thought she was making this up, poetic and stuff. But of course she wasn't. Uh, The phrase comes from a hymn written by William Cooper in the 18th century. Uh, and, And the first stanza is beautiful. It says, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Now the whole hymn really draws our attention to the way that God does move in mysterious ways. Unexpected, unpredictable, doesn't always make sense from our point of view kind of ways. And I think what, you know, we talked about last week, these crises we go through, the difficult circumstances in our life, you know, we we view them and we're tempted to see them as evidence that God's not concerned about us or that he's forgotten about us. But William Cooper's hymn reminds us that that's not the case. And this morning in our passage, Daniel 9, 20 through 27, we're going to see another mysterious work of God. Something that I'm not even sure, after studying all week, I completely understand. Um, But I can tell you something. That God is at work in this passage, and He's at work in our world. And if we're going to be faithful to the future, our challenge is not figuring out how God is working, but rather just trusting that He is. And so if you've got your Bible open to Daniel 9.20, we're going to read here. We're just going to read the whole passage this morning. And, uh, and then we'll come back and work our way through it bit by bit. This is what God's word says. Now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. He gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I've now come forth to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I've come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. And here's the vision. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make an atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you're to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress, Then after the sixty-two weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. That is a mystery. Okay, We're going to try to work our way through it here in a second. But before we do, if you weren't with us last week, you you may not know the context of this vision. We call it the vision of the 70 weeks. And and if you are here, maybe a refresher is in order. That Last week we saw this prayer that Daniel prayed to the Lord on behalf of all of Israel, uh, where he just honestly and openly laid bare all of his heart and soul, all the sins they had committed. They admitted to them. They, uh, They fessed up and asked God for forgiveness and for his mercy and compassion that he would come through on his promise to bring his people back to their homeland and to rebuild the temple and dwell with them again. And it was in the midst of this agonizing prayer, which, like we said last week, we kind of feel sorry for the guy beating himself up over and over and over again. It's in the midst of this agonizing, soul draining prayer that Gabriel shows up. This isn't the first time Gabriel's appeared to Daniel. We saw him back in chapter 8 in the vision of the ram and the goat. And Gabriel's name means God is my warrior. And in this case, Gabriel came to comfort Daniel. He says, you're highly esteemed, you're greatly loved. And he touches him and gives him strength. And then interprets to Daniel the vision. See, from Daniel's perspective, he had been keeping track of things in his day planner. He knew that 70 years were up, and that meant that surely God was about to restore his people. But Gabriel's message said that God had bigger plans in mind than just a simple Return from exile. He didn't want to just solve this problem of the people being far away and the temple being destroyed. He actually wanted to deal with its underlying cause, which was Israel's sinful heart. And so God sent Gabriel to Daniel to bring him into the bigger plan, the bigger picture of what God intended to do for his people. I wish he didn't do it in the way he did, to be honest with you. It's what Winston Churchill called A Riddle Wrapped in a Mystery, Inside an Enigma. I don't understand completely what all these 70 weeks are about, but I know that Daniel was even more confused than I am. Because here's the thing. Gabriel's message told Daniel that the restoration was going to take longer than Daniel expected. The restoration was going to take longer than Daniel expected. The vision of the 70 weeks told Daniel that God's plan to restore his people Was it going to take 70 years, like Daniel had thought? 70 years of exile, and then we go home. No, Gabriel says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people. I imagine Daniel speaking to God as Peter did Jesus. Uh, How long, Lord, until you restore us? 70 years? And God says, no, 70 times 7. Right, And how we interpret this passage and how we understand the relationship of the 70 weeks to each other really rests on this kind of concept of 77s. Your Bible probably says weeks, because the Hebrew word shavah is week, but it's also the word seven, because there are seven days in a week. And so the New Living Translation, I think, says 70 periods of time, or 70 sets of seven. My Bible that we read is the New American Standard, and it says 70 weeks, And so we have to understand what these weeks are if we want to understand the passage. The first thing we realize is that seven is a highly significant and symbolic number in the Bible. We know this, but let me just run through a few examples. Scripture records seven days of creation in Genesis 1. Seven clean animals that were taken to Noah's ark. Seven times that Israel walked around Jericho. Seven times that Naaman washed himself in the river Jordan. There were seven deacons in the early church. And the book of Revelation talks about seven churches, seven spirits, seven lampstands, seven angels with seven trumpets, seven plagues, and seven bowls. Sevens are everywhere in the Bible. Already we've seen them in Daniel. Back in chapter 2, when Nebuchadnezzar was ready to punish Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah for refusing to bow down to his golden image, he heated up his furnace Seven times hotter than normal. That's not a very precise. You ever tried to turn sevens into decimals? Who knows how much hotter that is, but it's seven times. Kind of symbolic there. Then later, when Nebuchadnezzar exalts himself against God and says, Look at Babylon the Great, which I have made, he loses his sanity for seven periods of time. Extensive use of the number seven throughout Scripture led the early church fathers to designate seven as The number of cosmic completion and perfection. Therefore, when Gabriel comes to Daniel, we could understand these 70 periods of seven as a perfect representation of God's complete plan for his people. All right? So maybe the 70s periods of seven are symbolic and representative. But seven doesn't just symbolize stuff. It's almost as if God has structured all of time around the number seven. We already said there are seven days in a week. Maybe you remember back in Genesis chapter 1 that God created everything that is by the word of his mouth from nothing. Just said, let there be, and there was. And he created in the span of six days. And then Genesis 2 tells us on the seventh day he rested from all his labors and he set aside the seventh day to be holy. Remember the word for seven in Hebrew is Sheva. And the word for Sabbath is Shabbat. They're related. The seventh day is set apart as holy. And God told his people in the Ten Commandments, which we read this week in our Bible reading plan, that they were to honor the Sabbath, to keep it holy, to set it apart to the Lord as a day of worship and a day of rest. But beyond the seven days, did you know there's actually a pattern of seven years? There's a Sabbath year. Why don't you turn in your Bible with me to Leviticus 25? And we're going to be in Leviticus this week in our Bible reading plan. And listen, we all know how difficult Leviticus can be. Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that's where people typically bail out on their Bible reading plan. Don't you do it. You keep going this week. Don't bail. But in Leviticus 25, God relates to his people not the Sabbath of the week, but the Sabbath of the year. He says in verse 2, When you come to the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year, there should be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. This seventh Sabbath year was supposed to be a year when the land lie fallow, when it was allowed to replenish its fertility, where the people expressed complete dependence on God. Now, a hard thing, the Sabbath year, every seven years, don't do anything. So we got the Sabbath of the days, we got the Sabbath of the years, and then there is an even larger Sabbath cycle. After the seventh Sabbath cycle, the 49th year, there was to be a special year set apart. You know what it's called? The year of Jubilee, right? A special Sabbath year, when not only did the land lie fallow, But if any land had been bought or sold, you could read about this in Leviticus 25 and 8 following. But had any land been bought or sold, it was supposed to be returned to its ancestral owner. And if any Israelite had gotten into a tight place and sold themselves into slavery, they're supposed to be set free. The Jubilee year. And when you think about this, this seven thing, ordering time, creating a wonderful rhythm of rest and rejuvenation. Uh, we, we look at it, we think, wow, what a blessing. If only, we, you know, we get bent out of shape about student loan forgiveness. God is talking about every 50 years, a complete economic reset. Wow, what a huge blessing. What a wonderful gift. But you know, there's no biblical or historical record that Israel ever observed a Jubilee year. In fact, scripture indicates the opposite. If you turn the page to Leviticus 26, you see God's warning that He gives if they turn back on all the commands He gave them. And in, I'm going to start reading in verse 28 and just kind of give you the highlights from Leviticus 26. God warned Israel, if when they got in the land, they didn't obey His commands, He said, I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. I'll lay your cities waste, and I'll make your sanctuaries desolate. I myself will devastate the land. I'll scatter you among the nations. I'll unsheath the sword after you. That's an image. And your land shall be a desolation, and your city shall be a waste. Verse 33. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbaths, as long as it lies desolate while you're in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest. Get this, the rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. In other words, God said, if you listen to my commands, I'm going to build in around these periods of seven a wonderful pattern of rest and rejuvenation. But if you disobey me, I'm going to unsheath my sword and I'm going to kick you out and let the land have the rest that it's meant for. And that's exactly what happened. The book of Chronicles in 2 Chronicles 36 interprets the exile this way. It says, Nebuchadnezzar took into exile in Babylon those who'd escaped from the sword. That's kind of weird. And they became servants to him and to his sons, like Daniel. Until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths, all the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So listen carefully. Let's try to pull all this together. The 70 years of exile that Daniel has been keeping track of while he was in Babylon's court weren't haphazard, arbitrary. And why 70 years? Why not 64 years? Well, each one of those years in exile was significant because according to 2 Chronicles 36, each one of those years represented a Sabbath year that had not been observed while Israel was in the land. Would you know that from the foundation of the kingdom of Israel until the day of their exile was essentially seven Sabbath cycles. So all those Sabbaths that they had neglected, all those years they had foolishly worked the ground instead of letting it rest, God exacted punishment and gave the land rest during their exile. And so when Daniel says, all right, God, you said 70 years, and the 70 years is up, God says, that's true, but wait, it's going to take longer than you thought because the problem's worse than you imagined. can't remember how I put this in the bulletin, but Israel's problem ran deeper than they understood. See, Daniel repented on behalf of Israel for their neglect of God's law. I imagine in the back of his mind, he's thinking about all those Sabbaths that had gone Unobserved. He's thinking about all the idolatry, the unfaithfulness, the unwillingness to bend when God brought correction. And he repents for it. And in his mind, he thinks that now that sins have been repented of, God's going to be merciful and compassionate, and he's going to bring us back to the land. And this time, he'll bless us with his presence, and we'll be able to stay. But it's like I told you a few minutes ago. God was interested more... And then restoring his people from exile, he wanted to deal with the cause of exile, their sinful hearts. And so Gabriel told Daniel in verse 9-24, Daniel 9-24, "...seventy weeks have been decreed for you, for your people and your holy city, Two, And these are the, the purpose of the seventy periods of seven. "...to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity..." to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Daniel thinks 70 years of exile were punishment so that our sins would be forgiven and we could come back. And God says, I've got a bigger plan than that. I'm not interested in just bringing you back to the way things were before. I'm interested in something much larger. The 70 periods of seven and the 70 weeks... They're not some kind of timeout, Like the, I don't know if you watch hockey, I don't much, but I do know that if a guy hits another guy with a stick, they have to go sit in timeout for three minutes, you know, and then they get to come back out and play again, right? That's about all I know of hockey. But that's not what the 70 years of exile or the 70 weeks were about. It's not time-out. You guys go think about what you've done, and then maybe I'll bring you back to the land. They're not some kind of purgatory, They're like, well, Israel had to go through some punishment so that God could refine them so they could come back. No, that's not what it's about at all. These 70 periods of seven were God's perfect and complete plan to deal with human sin once and for all. And we know this is the case because he comes at it from two different sides. If you think about the six verbs that we just looked at in verse 24, they break down into two groups of three. The first is kind of negative, to make an end or to finish the transgression to make an end of sin to make atonement for iniquity maybe this week if you grab the discipleship guide you'll think about how these things in verse 924 correspond to Daniel's prayer last week but i'll just go ahead and tell you that israel's problem just like all of our problems is that they had transgressed the law of god They had done the things that he had forbidden. They had worked on the Sabbath. They hadn't let the land rest on the Sabbath year. They had neglected the Jubilee. And they'd sinned by missing the mark of his standard, failing to do exactly what he required. Because of that, they were utterly twisted. That's that word iniquity, which means to turn aside. And they were in need of atonement. Now, the Bible's clear. All have sinned. And fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous. No, not one. And so it didn't matter how long Israel remained away from God. They would never discover some newfound discipline or desire to obey completely. The transgressions, sins, and iniquities that characterized their life before was bound to characterize their life going forward. And because of that, they couldn't come up with a solution for their salvation. They needed somebody else to atone for their sins. And atonement is a wonderful Bible word for a really common concept. You know, God is holy and just. He has the right to tell humanity how we live. What he says goes. And when we sin against him or transgress his commandments and become perverted and and twisted and commit iniquities, he's right. To unsheath the sword and judge. It's what we deserve. In 70 years, 490 years, 490 million years would not be enough time for us to repay him for what we've done against him. So we need something else. Israel needed someone who was going to pacify God's wrath, suffer under his sword in their place, and remove the guilt of their sin. And according to the Lord, through Gabriel, these 70 periods of seven, these 70 weeks, were intended to bring about that needed atonement. They're more than a do-over, not a reset. But this is an advancement. He intends to bring them beyond where they were before. We know that because the second purpose, the second group of three, is the positive side. To bring in everlasting righteousness. To seal up vision and prophecy. And to anoint the most holy place. The problem for Israel was that though God was merciful, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, keeping covenant to the 10,000th generation, Israel had a problem in that they had a persistent waywardness within them. They were from the beginning rebelling against Him, and He had given them a sacrificial atonement to make. The Day of Atonement offered every year because he knew every year it's going to be the same. You're going to sin this year and you're going to need atonement. And the same next year. And the year after that. And the year after that. And the year after that. The story of the Old Testament is God's faithfulness and Israel's faithlessness and rebellion. So even when God restored his people to the Promised Land, if they somehow found a way to rebuild the temple and reinstitute the sacrifices, all that meant was they were right back where they were before, accepting the fact that every year's the same. We sin and God forgives. We sin and God forgives. We sin and God forgives. It's kind of the way one scholar put it, Peter Gentry. He said, you can get the people out of Babylon, but the harder problem is getting Babylon out of the people. They weren't sinful and idolatrous because they were living among a sinful and idolatrous people. Even when they'd been in the promised land, that sin and idolatry welled up from within. They were at best half hearted in their commitment to the righteousness God required. And so what they needed was something different not half hearted righteousness, but whole hearted righteousness, an everlasting righteousness. The kind of righteousness that God had promised through Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 21 Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. And according to Gabriel, at the end of these 70 weeks, that's exactly what was going to happen. The people were going to possess an everlasting righteousness so that their livelihood and their presence in the land wasn't always at risk of being sent out by an unsheathed sword. They would know that we are where we're supposed to be and God is with us and nothing can take that away. But beyond that, Gabriel says the end of the 70 weeks brings. Uh, an end to vision and prophecy. He says, all vision and prophecy will be sealed up. Now, this is a confusing one. To set a seal to something can either mean two things. It means to either authenticate it by giving it USDA choice. Bam. It's authentic. This is the real deal, baby. Can't find it anywhere else. It's got the stamp of Approval. And so maybe what God is saying is that at the end of the 70 weeks, he's going to put his stamp on it, put his seal on it, and every prophecy that had ever been given would have been proven to be true. All prophecy would be fulfilled. On the other hand, to seal something up like you do your peanut butter jar or your toothpaste means that you close it. It's not open anymore. And maybe what God means is that at the end of the 70 weeks, there will be no further prophecy. There won't be any need for it. Because either way, whether it's setting a seal to authenticate every promise that's been given or shutting it up so no more prophecy is given, in both cases, you kind of get the idea that maybe God's plan had come to fruition. At the end of these 70 weeks, there's no need for prophecy. Everything that God's going to do, He's done, just as He said He would. Then we come to the final purpose of the 70 weeks. uh, One of the more important and challenging ones, again, of these. Gabriel says he's going to anoint a most holy, and our Bibles typically put in there for us, most holy place, and the reason they do that is because throughout the Bible where this Hebrew phrase, the most holy, occurs, it, it occurs in association with the tabernacle or temple. The most holy place is the holy of holies. And so when they see this phrase, they assume that just as it is everywhere else, this is related to the reconstruction of a future temple that God is going to anoint the Holy of Holies with his presence. And given the overlapping ministries, I don't know if you knew this, but Daniel and Ezekiel are prophesying at the same time, and the end of Ezekiel's prophecy, chapters 40 through 48, refer to a future glorious temple that's going to be built. And so because those two things overlap, lots of scholars believe that the most holy place that Gabriel's talking about is the future temple that Ezekiel sees, that God is going to anoint the future Holy of Holies with his presence. However, the traditional Christian interpretation, and one that was even present in medieval rabbis, the rabbi Ibn Ezra and Nachmenides, both of them interpreted this as a messianic prophecy. That the most holy is not a place, but a person, the Messiah. That he was going to anoint, the word anoint is the same word for Messiah. He was going to anoint a most holy person. I'm not completely sure. But it's obvious from Gabriel's message that when you put all these six purposes of the 70 weeks, you get the idea that when all is said and done, When God's made an end of transgression, an end of sin, when He's atoned for iniquities, when He's sealed up prophecy, when He's anointed this most holy place or holy person, this is the end. This is the grand culmination of God's plan when His kingdom is established on earth as it is in heaven. In that day, God wouldn't simply restore His people to their homeland. He'd redeem them from their sin and usher in the everlasting promises that He'd made. Daniel thought they needed Just that little simple act of forgiveness. And then we can go back to the way things were 70 years ago in the good old days when the temple was there and we were worshiping you. And God said, I got bigger plans for you than that. I don't want to just deal with the consequence of your sin. I want to deal with the cause of your sin. I want to come in and I want to give you a new heart. Because of that, I believe that God's plan was fulfilled in Christ. And that's why we come to this outline of the 70 weeks in verses 25 and through 27. And uh, I'll, I'll get there to that final conclusion. But take it with me in three phases. Right? Are y'all good? Okay, you're not glazed over and bleary-eyed or anything? If I were an angel, I'd touch you and give you your life back. As it is, I'm just going to keep preaching at you. Right? So take it in three phases. The first phase is a return from exile and the reconstruction of Jerusalem. Verse 25, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. So we have these 70 periods of seven broken down into three phases. And the first phase is seven weeks plus 62 weeks, right? And in this first week, the period of time is bounded by two events. On the one hand, Gabriel says a word is going to go out. And on the other end, it will be rebuilt with plaza and moat. Now, you can go home this weekend, or this afternoon this week, and you can research the various interpretations of Daniel's 70 weeks. And you'll see various chronological markers where different people have started the clock at different moments based on this word going out. Some people say the word is the word that Gabriel brings. And so from the moment Gabriel speaks, the clock begins. My view is that the word that he's speaking about is the word of Cyrus the Great, who in the same year that Daniel receives this prophecy, gave permission, actually more than permission, to the Judeans, to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. His words recorded for us in Ezra 1, verses 1-4, through 4, and 2 Chronicles 36, 22-23. And why don't we just look at Ezra 1 so you can kind of get the idea. If you're not in a Bible drill, you can just wait. I'll get there, and I'll read it. Ezra 1. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, In order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. Now you know about Nebuchadnezzar and how he thought. Think about how different Cyrus is from Nebuchadnezzar. He's appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He's the God who's in Jerusalem. I take that to be the word that goes out, sending God's people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. doesn't fit perfectly in some grand chronological scheme, as I'll I'll admit to you. But I think that this word that goes out begins a period of time characterized by God's people returning and rebuilding the city. First, the temple under the ministry of Ezra, and later, uh, the walls under the ministry of Nehemiah. So what begins in 538 B.C. is completed by 445 B.C. I think that is the first seven weeks. It's characterized by um, God fulfilling the word he promised, that after 70 years he was going to bring his people back. That's the concern of Daniel, right? Right? But then we go beyond that to the second phase. 62 weeks go by. Nothing much has happened. And you know from the history of the Bible that that's basically the case, that after the temple walls are rebuilt, there are some prophecies going on, those minor prophets. But eventually, prophecy is shut up for 400 years, and God's people live in silence. And those weren't easy years. Gabriel says there are going to be times of distress. They were pretty distressing. In, In that time, we saw the... The guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, who um, typifies the future Antichrist, comes into the temple, erects a golden statue to Zeus on the altar. I mean, These were not easy times by any stretch. But from God's perspective, as he's thinking about his plan for his people, the next big event happens after those 62 weeks are done. So after 69 of the 70 weeks, Gabriel says in verse 25, Messiah the Prince would appear. And in verse 26, he comes back to that thought, and he says, After the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. The people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. Now, my Bible and your Bible may read differently. My Bible says in verse 25 and 26 that the Messiah will come. The Messiah will be cut off. I think the NIV says, The Anointed One, with capital letters. And the ESV says, An Anointed One. They take the Hebrew phrase and they use it as a description. Whereas the King James Bible and the New American Standard Bible, following that messianic interpretation of the passage, view it as a title. The Messiah. Not any old anointed person, but the long-awaited one. It's not... Messiah and somebody anointed like Aaron was for the high priesthood. Not somebody anointed like David was for the kingship or like Cyrus was. God calls Cyrus his Messiah. But this is something different. Given the purpose of the 70 weeks laid out in verse 24, I think my conviction, we can debate about this, but my conviction is that this is the Christ the one who arrives to make an end of sin, to provide atonement, to usher in his kingdom. He was born around A.D. 2, began his public ministry around A.D. 27. But Paul tells us that his birth was not haphazard or arbitrary. He says in Galatians 4 that when the fullness of time had come. What time? What fullness? What what is Paul thinking about? when he thinks about that, well, when the time was right. No, I think that what he says and the way Paul talks about the mystery that had been hidden from the ages but now been revealed in Christ, I think he has in mind that God from before the foundation of the world had a timeline in mind, and that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. Paul also says in Romans 5 that at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. There's nothing haphazard or arbitrary about the moment of Christ's birth or any significant event in his life. Everything happened according to plan, according to God's perfect timing. And the reason that I'm sort of sold on this messianic interpretation of Daniel 9 rather than um, the future antichrist or something like that is because of what uh, Gabriel says in verse um, 26. After the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. The word behind cut off is um, the Hebrew word karat, not karate, but kind of similar to that, because the idea karat is used idiomatically throughout the Old Testament. It, the word translated is to cut. And in Genesis 15, it's used when God comes and makes a covenant with Abraham, he cuts the covenant. Now, I don't know if you've, Genesis 15 is bizarre, so you might have breezed through that in your Bible reading plan. But God comes to Abraham and promises that he's going to make him a covenant, give him the land of Israel, make him a blessing, all those wonderful things he says. And Abraham's like, can I really trust you? How am I to know? So God instructs him to offer a sacrifice of animals. But instead of offering them on an altar, he has him split them in half, cut them in half, and lay their parts on the ground. The reason he does that is bizarre to us. You know, it's kind of gory. You sure you want to do this? But in their culture, that was normal. Because when a covenant was entered into, two people promised to each other to be completely faithful to the terms of the covenant. And to signify it, instead of saying, I cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. They said, we're going to cut this animal in half. And then they ritually walk through it. And they symbolized, implied, that if I go back on the terms of the covenant, let what happened to these animals happen to me. And so instead of Abraham and God taking turns walking through those animals, God himself walked through, flaming torch in a fire pot. God took the terms of the covenant on himself. He said, if I fail to fulfill my word to you, Abraham, let what happened to these animals happen to me. The word there, to make the covenant, idiomatically, an idiom, to cut the covenant, is the same word used in verse 26. It says, the Messiah will be cut off. Would you believe? In Isaiah 53, when Isaiah prophesied the future coming Messiah, he recorded God's question. Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? This suffering servant, of course, everybody sees him there, Um, battered and bruised, crushed, and they assume he's getting exactly what he deserves. Nobody saw the truth, that he was cut off out of the land of the living and stricken for the transgression of the people. He's cut off. Daniel 9, 26. Furthermore, the Lord had told Jeremiah of a future covenant that would be enacted. He will enact a strong covenant for one week. Jeremiah 32, 37 I'll gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I'll bring them back to this place, and I'll make them dwell in safety. There's the first seven weeks. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. And I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn away from me. Listen, the promise of a future covenant given through Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the promise of future blessing coming through Isaiah is all wrapped up in the person of Jesus. And it was secured when he was cut off to inaugurate a new covenant. He said at that last Passover meal, which was to commemorate the great sacrifice of atonement, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for forgiveness for many for forgiveness of sins. So I take it that after 62 weeks, either whether, you, remember, chronology doesn't fit. I take it to be symbolic and representative that Christ appears, whether in his life or at his death. And he makes atonement for the people, which brings us to phase three which is that halfway through the final week Messiah will put a stop to sacrifice until the end he says he'll make a firm covenant with the many for one week but in the middle of the week he'll put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate this final phase of Daniel's vision uh, really envisions a future and imminent conclusion of God's appointed time. 69 weeks is up. That's only one week left until the 70. But then halfway through, right before the end, there's a pause put into place. If, if some you know believe that this is a uh, future period of time when the Antichrist will arise and desecrate another rebuilt temple. And I've got Hal Lindsey's book, *The Late Great Planet Earth*, that I looked at this morning, page 56. He gives you all the details of what that is. Others, though, see it as fulfilled in the Roman destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. After Jesus' death, of course, um, there was no need for temple sacrifices. He offered himself as a sacrifice for sins once and for all. Um, but that didn't mean that everybody fell in line. Right? The book of Hebrews uh, encourages Jewish Christians not to turn back to the temple but to remain committed to Jesus who suffered outside the camp. But in AD 70, Titus walked into town and destroyed the temple. Now he he turned over every stone. You can still see them. They're still laying where they were pulled down in the 70 in AD 70, not the 70s. Well, but in AD 70, they're still there. Temple destroyed, hasn't been rebuilt. Others think that maybe Jesus has in mind this Half of the week begins in A.D. 70 when the temple is destroyed, and it concludes in A.D. 135 when a Messianic pretender named Simon, he called himself Bar Kokhba, the star of Judah, star of the sky. He came and and, uh, announced himself as the Messiah, and the Sanhedrin fell in line this time. And they authenticated him, said, he's the real deal. For two years, he rules over Judah, uh, Judea as sort of an autonomous empire. He even makes his own money. And then in 135, the Emperor Hadrian calls back Julius Severus, one of his most outstanding generals, and he brought in soldiers from across the empire as far as uh, uh, Germany today, and they destroyed the city of Jerusalem, put down the revolt, and uh, expelled the Jews from the city. So, however you look at it, Jerusalem's destroyed. Judgment has been brought out, it came on like a flood. But again, I want to be humble on this because Daniel's vision of the 70 weeks told of God's mysterious plan to bring his people back from exile and then to do even more than that. Not just to deal with the consequence of sin, but to deal with its cause. Not to deal with the symptom, but to get to the actual root of the problem. And because of that, it's my personal conviction that our tortured attempts to try to pin down the events to specific chronology, runs the risk of missing the point. And here's why. Our responsibility is never to perfectly understand God's plan. It's not even to remind God of some predetermined and announced timeline. Like, hey God, you said 70 years, and 70 years is up, where are you at? But instead, our responsibility, especially in times like this when it's not always clear what God is up to, Is to trust his plan. Jesus said, No one knows the day or the hour, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. So, had you been in Daniel's shoes the day Gabriel arrived in his bedroom to give him this vision of 70 weeks, you probably would have struggled to believe that the end of the exile was actually going to take longer than you initially thought. Had you been living in the time of Christ, you'd have been right there with those people and said, He's getting what he deserves you'd have failed to realize what God was really up to. And I say that because I assume, like you, when God's plan in my life doesn't match up with my plans, my first reaction is not to humble myself before the Lord and allow Him to gently and lovingly correct me and submit myself to His direction. I get angry, worried, frustrated. God, I thought you were gonna do this. I thought you were gonna do that. Where are you? What are you doing? How do you dare not do what you said you were going to do for me? But God moves in a mysterious way. We're interested in the spiritual equivalent of get-rich-quick schemes and fad diets. We want to know, how can I get my life on track in one week? How can I get right with my family? How can I overcome everything? But God doesn't work that way. He doesn't work in one-day time periods, one-week time periods. We're focused on what's going to happen next month or next year. God's plan is a lot bigger than that. He knows how each moment, minuscule, milliseconds, He knows how each millisecond of your life works together to accomplish in you an eternal weight of glory that's beyond all comparison. He uses crises and disappointments to refine us and shape us into the image of Jesus. I don't know exactly those 70 weeks, how they were supposed to be parsed out, but I do know this. God has a perfect plan for you, each of you. 70 weeks, 70 years, I don't know. Moses says in Psalm 90 that the length of our life is uh, 70 years, which I think is interesting. Maybe by reason of strength, 80 But he knows beyond even that. He knows eternity for you. He created you for fellowship with him from the beginning. He wants you to know him. But because of your sin, your transgression and iniquity, you're kind of like Daniel looking around, trying to make sense of the brokenness you see all around you. And you say, hey, God, what are you doing? What do you think you're doing? Thought you had plans to prosper me, plans for my good, not to harm me. Where are you right now? He wants to refine you, to shape you. That begins, of course, when a person recognizes all that Jesus has done. When they see that he has made an end of sin in his death, that he took our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his stripes, we are healed. It all begins there when a person says, I'm done trying to make sense of my life, trying to fit all the pieces together. I'd much rather submit myself to your way for me. I can't determine what's going to happen tomorrow, but God, you have known each of my days from before time even began. You know what you want to accomplish in me. Show me how to follow you day by day. You know, the Bible says the plans of a righteous man are ordered by the Lord. That when a person commits themselves to following Jesus, maybe things don't get easier, but things become more clear You don't have to figure out how to figure out the end. You just have to be faithful in the moment. And God wants to do that for you today. Maybe you've never even trusted Jesus. Never even thought that he had anything to do with you. Well, I hope you see that he is all there is. All of human history, the 70 weeks and everything that's not included in those 70 weeks, finds its fulfillment in him. For it was by him and through Him, and for Him, that everything's been made, even you. And so your greatest joy and satisfaction will be found in living your life for Jesus. I want to help you do that today. But maybe you're discouraged and disappointed by the signs that you can only interpret as evidence that God has forgotten you or abandoned you. Y'all ever been there? told my wife one time, God left me here. God abandoned me. How foolish. I mean, from my perspective, it was true. I didn't see where God was at work. But trust me, even in those dark moments, what we called last week crisis times, he hasn't abandoned you. How could he? Who on earth would sacrifice their own son for a person and then decide sometime later that you weren't worth worrying about nobody Paul says in Romans 8 that will he who sacrificed his own son keep back from us any good thing no way so your moments of crisis are there and they're real and you can't always see what God is doing but you can trust that the good work that began hey listen before you were even born Before the foundation of the world, God set his love on you. Paul says in Ephesians 1, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That he sent Christ to die while we were yet sinners. Before any of us could ever raise our hand or bow our head and close our eyes and pray a prayer. Before any of that, God sent his son to die for you. How on earth could he ever turn his back on you now? He's already invested so much. He already has a purpose in mind. He hasn't forgotten you. no, brothers and sisters, we may not understand the events or circumstances of our times, but we can trust God's mysterious plan. He will finish in you what he started. That's why I love William Cooper's hymn, because we know the first line, God works in mysterious ways. And you know his other song, his other famous hymn is, there's a fountain filled with blood flows from Emmanuel's veins. We still sing that one. But you may not know the details of his life. William Cooper's mother died when he was six years old, and his father sent him to live in an 18th century boarding school where he was abused by an older boy. And the rest of his life, he struggled with severe depression, tried to kill himself multiple times with um, laudanum. He tried to throw himself off a bridge. He tried to hang himself with a belt, and the belt broke. Finally, they had him put into St. Albans Insane Asylum. He knew darkness, like you can't imagine. So when he says something like, God works in mysterious ways, I take what he says as kind of true. But if you read the rest of his hymn, you really get the point. Ye fearful saints' fresh courage take, The clouds ye so much dread, Are big with mercy, And shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. You don't have to understand all that God is doing in your life. But keep trusting that he's going to finish what he started in you. Will you pray with me?